Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. All right. Good sound in the room. Please be seated. It's good to see all of you. Happy New Year to everybody. The high point of our worship this morning is going to be a meeting with Jesus at the Lord's Supper, uh, the table of joy this morning. So I hope you, on the way in, were able to get a, um, uh, just the communion elements. And uh, if you didn't get one right now, we have Neil in the back, our ushers. Raise your hand if you need. There's a couple up here, Neil. Just keep your hands raised and Neil will go around and give everyone who didn't get that. We want to be sure everyone has communion elements before we approach the table. Well, um, some of the most interesting conversations I've had here in the building have been after funerals. Uh, a couple of years ago, there, we had a funeral. We were out in the reception uh, at the tables, and uh, I sat down with a man who was actually the state, one of the stage managers for the Denver Center for Performing Arts. And uh, he was just talking about the service, and he thanked us for the service, and he said, uh, it helped me understand what makes Christians tick. His night job was he was writing a play that he hoped to have produced on the stage, and he had a character in the play that identified as a Christian. And so he was grateful to understand what makes a Christian tick, and so I couldn't resist that. <laughs> what makes a Christian tick, do you think? And uh, he said, well, it has something to do, I think, with the resurrection of Jesus, because if Jesus rose from the dead, that totally changes how you look at death. I thought, that's pretty good. But I couldn't stop there. <laughs> and I said, but if, if the resurrection did happen, it not only changes death, but it has to change life too, right? I mean, if this guy walked out of his own grave and he's alive and he's this amazing person now, then like all the promises and things he said have to be reckoned with, right? Like, He's the living bread, and if you eat from him, you'll never be hungry again. He's the living water, you'll never be thirsty again. You have to deal with those things if he's a living person. The conversation didn't go too much farther at that particular moment, but it was a really good conversation. But that question has stuck with me to this week. What makes a Christian tick? What makes Anyone tick. We all tick. What makes rock stars tick? Well, Merry Christmas to me. I got a great book for Christmas. You may have heard of it. It's a garage band named U2 and uh, led by a dude named Bono. And um, what makes a rock star tick? One particular point in Bono's life, he was having vocal cord issues. And he couldn't sing. His throat kept constricting. And, you know, for a guy who makes a living with his vocal cords, very stressful time. And so he goes to physical MDs, and, and, and they can't find anything structurally wrong. So then he goes to some 
counselors and some therapists who think that maybe it's an anxiety issue because anxiety often constricts vocal cords. He decides this one that he builds a bit of a rapport to to try hypnosis. And so here in Bono's words are how, how all that went down. He said, I allowed him to put me under hypnosis. By the way, this is in his chapter called, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Under hypnosis, well, almost, Bono says. Imagine, said the doctor, a room with all your best memories around you. Be in that room. Open the drawer. Find those memories. The best things that have ever happened to you. The affirmations. Your partner. Your children. Your best friends. A moment that changed your life directions. All the best things. Be in that room. I was in that room. It might have been a rehearsal room as a new song dropped, but soon enough, it was a walk down a country lane. Now, said the doctor, continuing, pull out the feeling that makes you feel safest and strongest and describe it for me. I'm walking along a river with my best friend, I said, and everything is just as it should be. <laughs> Excuse me, I have confidence in my footsteps I feel I am learning judgment, but not being judged. I can say anything I want. Sometimes there's a reply, sometimes there's not. It's just a conversation between friends. And your friend inquired the doctor, who is it? I said, I think it's Jesus. I heard the doctor shuffle nervously in his seat. Maybe I wasn't that deep in his hypnosis. And he asks, where are you? I said, I'm just walking down a country lane by a river. I think it's the Jordan River. I've always had a thing about the Jordan River. Emerging from this, in quotes, deep relaxation, I could sense that the great physician had not expected me to have Jesus in my bottom drawer. The doctor was polite, but evidently disappointed Instead of discovering the source of the vocal problems, he had uncovered the source of the messianic complex. I thanked him because I knew for sure these images were deeply comforting ones from childhood, from the Sunday singing of gospel songs like, what a friend we have in Jesus. In truth, he would never know how he opened to me an experience that helped me understand myself why I view friendship as a kind of sacrament and my traveling companion in the way of faith has metamorphosed from the father of the Old Testament to also now the companion and friend of the New Testament. What makes you tick? Who's in your bottom drawer? Here's what makes Waterstone tick. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus said those words, a movement was launched that continues today. Through the hands and feet of Jesus, 
with your name and my name there. It's an influence. It's a direction. It's a control of history where God in Jesus Christ is going to make all things new. That's our future. That's invading the present. The lid is off the terrarium. Jesus reigns. He is in control, and he is working his plan. It's called the kingdom of God. Now, when you came in this morning, you received this pamphlet. If you have it, I'd love you for you to take it in your hands. And actually, if I could ask this, the indulgence is just bring this with you. Because the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about Waterstone Mission and the ways we live out the Waterstone Mission that we call Rhythms. The rhythms of life, or maybe we could call them using Bono's language or, or this gentleman's language after the funeral, the rhythms of tick. This is what makes us tick. And if you open up that brochure, you'll see the mission. This is uh, our, you know, language. Every church has a way to articulate what they're trying to do in carrying out the mission of Jesus. Everyone tries to be pithy and peppy, and this is our attempt. But I actually think it's pretty good. Uh, yeah, here it is. Would you read it aloud with me? We want to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. That's what makes us tick. It's who we are and what we're doing Everything around Waterstone is linked and hung on those words. Now, we try to broker that mission and that Jesus influence. We try to share it. We try to give it away by what we call rhythms. And if you turn the page, again, you'll see the first rhythm is the transform rhythm where we are trying to become more like Jesus so that we can carry this mission. And you can see the transform practices, and today we're going to just talk about a couple of transform practices as we go through. But before that, I would really think it valuable for us to actually see a church where the mission is in play and they are actually working hard at transform and being transformed and the influence that comes from a transformed life. So what I'd like to do is read the first chapter of a letter called 1 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. We'll have it on the screens. This is the picture. So just grab onto the visions that you see, these words, very picturesque chapter. And this is a church that is being transformed. I'll start at verse 1 and read the first chapter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. By the way, it's an ancient Greek church. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. 
You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word of the Lord. Picture of a church transformed and transforming. This was, uh, scholars believe, this letter was the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Probably 20 to 30 years after the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. What Paul's doing, as you heard, is encouraging this church, affirming them because the gospel that they received, that Jesus has died for their sins and raised a new life for their eternal life, has set so deeply in them that they are transformed. Works of faith, labors of love, endurance, and hope. This amazing changes going on in their individual lives and thus as a church in their corporate life as a church. And Paul is deeply, deeply encouraged, especially verses 9 and 10. If you look at verse 9, that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God because of Jesus and his resurrection. So what's a transformed church all about? To use Bono's language, a church that's being transformed has Jesus in the bottom drawer. He's everything. He's the beginning and the end. Being ascended now, he has all authority over heaven and earth. He's the definition of reality. He has the keys to death and to hell. He is the one who can give forgiveness of sins. He is the one who can promise resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus, the King. And a church that holds Jesus as King, they do not hold Jesus as an add-on. He's not just someone we get to when we have time. He's not just someone we fit into our schedule when we can. He's the king. And as king, he has access to every part of our lives. Even and especially those parts that we don't like anyone else to know about. He's allowed in. He is in. He's the king. And if he's the king, no add-ons. If he's the king, we hold nothing back. We submit to his loving leadership, and he changes us. I think everyone wants to change down deep. I think the human heart is restless. We're always looking for those things that will improve us, that will make us more loved or more fit or more effective or more known all those hankerings of the human heart, it's restless. And we're always, it, it explains New Year's resolutions. I heard on the Today Show, the five most common New Year's resolutions. See if any of these line up with you. Keep your car clean. Make your bed. Like who's, is this my mom making my New Year's resolution? 
Compliment someone and mean it. Get outside. Schedule more time with friends. There you go. You know, perhaps like you, uh, I've struggled. I've made New Year's resolutions. I haven't. I've come to learn I think there's a flaw in the New Year's resolution approach to life. Here it is. I think that when we make New Year's resolutions, our heart hankering after improvement, it's this kind of outside-in approach that typically doesn't last too long. We grab onto something and we find one of two things happen. One, it doesn't give us what we hope it'll give us. You know, the law of diminishing returns. The more you get of it, the more you need of it, it doesn't quite settle the heart down, you're on to the next thing. It doesn't become God to us. Or we're not strong enough to keep after it. And because we're not strong enough, we keep beating ourselves up, we keep getting like in bondage to the thing that we can't keep doing it because we're not strong enough. So either it's you know, too strong or we're not strong enough. And that kind of outside-in approach is really hard to live out. So what makes a Christian tick? Well, what makes a Christian tick is inside-out change. Because twice in the passage of that transformed church in Greece, it says that what changed them was an inner love and an inner joy from where? The Holy Spirit. You see, when a Christian... Uh, when a person makes a decision to say, Jesus is Lord, he's my king, everything in me is now his, and I'm giving my life to him. What happens in that moment is that his spirit comes to live in us. And two things happen when the Holy Spirit comes into us. One, there's a sense of God's love being poured into our heart. We actually become part of the first family, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and that eternal delight and joy that they've lived in for all eternity, now we get to experience by the Holy Spirit living in us. And we have this like immense joy, this immense love that's poured into us every day, every moment of our existence. If we're paying attention, if we're there, if we're in that space, God's saying, you're my family. I love you. This is joy to know me and for me to know you. And we have this love overflowing in us by God's Spirit. The second thing that happens when the Spirit comes into a person is that not only does that love come in, but it goes out. And suddenly, we become really, really reflective and really committed to this idea that we have to be more other-centered and less self-centered. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul calls it, in Galatians 5, you may have heard this, fruit. Like when the Spirit comes in, he starts messing with your heart, and he wants things in there like love and joy and peace and patience. Is anyone hearing me? Patience and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. The Spirit comes in, and all of a sudden, He's like working those into your life, and into your consciousness, and into, okay, and that's the big struggle, right? Okay, Jesus, I know what you want, but I, I kind of don't want to do that right now. And there's this, yeah, 
the Holy Spirit at work. Because you know, right, that each of those fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, good, each one of those bloom when? Well, when actually there's another person that you're engaging. That's when patience engages. That's when love engages. That's when, uh, you know, gentleness engages. Those are all seeds that are planted into relationships. What changes a person when they say Jesus is king, the spirit comes in, we know God loves us, and that love starts to come out from us. That's the Christian life. That's what makes a Christian tick. Now, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, do I have that tick? Do I, do I have God living in me? Do I know the Holy Spirit? Let me give you two ways to know. One, you have the Holy Spirit living in you if you have this struggle going on inside of you all the time, like saying, yes, Jesus, I know you want me to be other-centered, but I kind of like to be self-centered. If you hear, it's the, the great sawing sound of the Holy Spirit, right? Thessalonians, we read it. What's the Holy Spirit doing all the time in your heart? Cutting down the idols. Money, sex, politics. Can I say that? <laughs> all the time. John Calvin, by the way, the Holy Trinity, Holy Human Trinity on my office wall is Bono, John Calvin, and Martin Luther. <laughs> John Calvin said that the heart is a human idol factory. And all the time the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts to cut them down. Calvin, or Luther said that whatever you confide in or cling to, that is your God. And so the Holy Spirit's always in, in there. What are you clinging to? What are you confiding in? I want it to be me, the Spirit says, but you know how our hearts wonder. That's how we know that God is in us and working on us is we have this, this um, spiritual aggressiveness that's always going after what's going on in our hearts. Are you tracking with me? Anyone, anyone experiencing that? The second way you know is, you know, do I know God? The second way you know is that you're asking the question. You want to move closer to God is already saying that you don't want to be far from him. Let me say it this way. A sense of his absence is evidence of his presence. If you are sensing that maybe you've moved from God, maybe you're far from him, welcome back. You are coming back. You are already moving towards him. And he is waiting in just a few minutes at the table of joy to sit down with your fellowship again. David, the great king of Israel in the Old Testament, he wrote the Psalms. He had a period in his life where he made some terribly, terribly bad decisions, ripped apart marriages, ripped apart families. He murdered a man. Really, really bad stretch. And he went through a period of probably two to three years where he just put God on the shelf. But he came back. And when he came back, he gave us this great language in Psalm 51. Some of you might need Psalm 51 today. Some of you might need Psalm 51 this week, coming back from where you're coming, where David says to God, restore to me the joy 
of my salvation. Create in me a clean heart. Come back. Right now, someone in the room needs to hear this. Come back. Be with Jesus. He wants you back. Are you praying all that together, Waterstone? We're praying that together this morning. What makes a Christian tick? Jesus is king. And his spirit comes and lives in us and pours the love of the Trinity into us. And out of us comes that other-centered life. So how do we keep the fire stoked? How do we keep that transforming happening in our lives? Well, we like to call those things, those transforming uh, works, spiritual practices. And really quickly, with the time we have left, I want to talk about a couple of spiritual practices that are in this Thessalonians passage that this church was living out that, I, that, I want, that we want Waterstone to be filled with all over, no matter where you walk in Waterstone, to see this kind of transformation. The first one has to do with Scripture. Twice in the text, it says that this church received the gospel Another place it says, receive the message. Now, of course, the New Testament wasn't put together yet in the very early church, but what they are referring to is the story of Jesus and what would become the New Testament. And so what Paul is saying that in order for a church to be transformed and transforming, there has to be the input of Scripture. The Bible needs to have a place in our lives. Now, that probably doesn't surprise many of us in the room. Because we believe the Bible is what we need to know about God. It carries the revelation of who he is. The Bible is actually God's voice talking to us. It's not just a book. And so any work of transformation is never far from Scripture. But I want to remind us of a couple of things this morning. First, I want to remind us that when Jesus was with us, you know, the Son of God, he made the Scriptures a very important part of his life. At the age of 12, you might remember, he went to the temple and he got into some very, you know, interesting discussions with, you know, men who were 15, 20 years older than him, these, these rabbis, and he was holding his ground with them. The only thing I can see from that is that Jesus went to Sabbath school growing up, like your kids are, and it's so important for your kids to be here in Sunday school. He, he's learning the Old Testament scriptures, and he knew them well. So it's that when he was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, he quoted back to the devil Deuteronomy and the Psalms. In the middle, uh, throughout his, if you read his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, you see him quoting so much scripture that he knew by memory. You see at the very end of his life, at his hardest moment, what does he do? He prays. Verbatim, Psalm 22, the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm suggesting to you that Jesus' life was formed by Scripture. The Scripture helped him hold together. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that all Scripture is God-breathed, like God talking, like I'm talking in front of my mouth, there's breath coming out. All scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. A more recent example 
You may remember in 2014, Bring Back the Girls, 300 teenage girls were kidnapped by Boko Haram, the militant group in Nigeria. What you didn't hear much about in the press was that most of these girls were Christians. They're from the Brethren in Christ Church. And when all the violence happened and things went down and they were kidnapped, one of the girls had presence of mind to actually, under her clothes, get a Bible. And so this, during the three years of captivity, this Bible that Naomi Adamu, and she writes about this, by the way, in her book, Bring Back the Girls, you can read about this, they buried the Bible near the latrine so that you know, no one would ever look around the latrine for contraband. So the girls were going to the bathroom. What they were actually doing was digging up the Bible, writing pages of it, and taking it back with them. And by the end of the three-year captivity, Naomi Adamu said that most of the girls had the book of Job, many of the Psalms, and Luke chapter 2 memorized. And an interviewer asked Naomi, why Luke chapter 2? Well, it's because we wanted Jesus to be born in our lives every day. Luke chapter 2 is the birth narrative of Jesus. The scriptures held their lives together. So real quick, I want to just give an invitation to you that maybe if you're looking for a fresh start, maybe something new, or maybe you're just doubling down to do it again. But part of our journey has to have time set aside where we engage with Scripture. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor, uh, put it this way, none of us is so rushed that it would be impossible to allow for even 10 minutes in the day, in the morning or the evening, in which arrangements could be made for silence in order to place oneself into the presence of eternity. Wow, right? Wow. Allow it to speak, question it, and thereby look deep within and far beyond oneself. Whoever earnestly works at this day by day will be overwhelmed by the golden harvest of fruit of those times. So some ways to use that maybe 10 minutes. Uh, we have some scriptural ideas for you here. I think it's the next slide, Helmut. There we go. You can try, there's all kinds of different apps, but two of my favorites are the top there, Read Scripture, it's from the Bible Project. You can, on their uh, reminders each day, you can read the Bible three chapters a day and go through it in a year, or one chapter a day and go through it in three years. And it has all these great uh, introductions to the books, tells you a lot about the words that you're reading. I love the Bible Project, and I highly recommend this app. I'm curious, how many of you might even use some of this app? Yeah. Good. Amen. Uh, the, the bottom one, the Lectio 365, is an app that follows the church calendar and the seasons like Lent and Advent and all the Epiphany and all the seasons. And each day there's about a 10-minute scripture reading, a time for prayer, silence, and guidance. There's one in the morning you can do or there's one at night you can do. I love Lectio 365. It's a great way to drive to work. And uh, listen to it that way. Um, it's from a group called the 24-7 Prayer. And a lot of resources on prayer there. Lastly, I would highly recommend the Songs of Jesus, which is a way to pray through the Psalms. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller. And there's a daily song, piece of a psalm and a short prayer and some great reflection. 
Be formed by the voice of God, Scripture. The last practice I want to mention this morning is uh, small groups and uh, Wednesdays at Waterstone. You've heard Emily talk about them. I want to kind of give a reason, hopefully a motivation for you. In, uh, again, this transforming church in Thessalonians, Paul makes this really interesting statement. He said, what's transformative about this church is that you know how we lived. We, we lived together. We were so close to each other that we could see, you know, how you live the faith, how I live the faith, and in the middle of there, there's just a garden blooming when we share our lives together that way. My friends, the early church was built on relationships. Now, we get that from Jesus himself. Think about this with me. The closest thing Jesus had to a program was that he did a three-year camping trip with 12 guys. And he changed the world. What's fun I think as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially the Gospels about how they all lived together, is they had some really hard days. I remember a day in Matthew chapter 20 where they're all together, the 12, and they're mad. Ten of them were really, really mad because what had happened was that James and John had asked, well, one of the Gospels lets us in on what really happened. James and John sent their mom to ask Jesus if they could sit at Jesus' hands in the new kingdom. How would you feel about that? They are really struggling as a group. They're angry. Well, Jesus says, hey, teachable moment. Here we go. Guys, listen up. Here's the kingdom. The kingdom, here's how we live. We don't live to be served. We live to serve and to give our lives away. Teachable moment. But I am always so encouraged that Jesus, as a small group leader, had his small group blow up on him. <laughs> In fact, Paul and I get calls during the week sometimes. Rachel gets calls. Yeah, our small group, you know, all this happened. So sometimes it's, yes, all right? They're going to go to a place that they haven't been before. We'll navigate. We'll help through. Read Matthew 20. Be encouraged. You're, you're going to have some teachable moments coming up in your small group. But anyhow... My point is this, we want you to be in a small group, every one of us at Waterstone, or to attend Wednesday nights where you'll sit at a table with people for seven, eight straight weeks, because you'll get some good teaching, yes. You'll get cared for, yes. You'll be held accountable, yes. But do you really want to know why we want you in a small group? And me too, is because it's there we learn to love. Not to get, but to give. And for eight weeks, you own 12 people and you pray for them every day. And you have conversations with them and you think about them during the week. That's why we encourage you to get into a group. You can do that today. You can do that on our website. The text says that when all this happened, when Scripture formed their lives and when relationship formed their lives after Jesus came into them through his spirit. There was great joy that rang out from them as a church. It covered Macedonia and Achaia, which is the whole nation of Greece and beyond. This church was booming in influence. In fact, that word rang out, it literally means the sound of a trumpet 
or the clap of thunder. So I was thinking about that this week. The sound of a trumpet, the clap of thunder. Do you know what you get when you put a thunder, a, a cl- the, the sound of a trumpet and a clap of thunder together? The most joyful instrument in the world, a tuba. <laughs> Jen and I were at the Christmas market in Georgetown a few years back. And we heard that there was a tuba band coming to play at the community center. We went in. There was 10 tubas playing Silent Night. And it was so loud that people were around the outside edges of the room, except the little children who were in the middle of the room lying on the floor because the floor was vibrating and it made them giggle. (laughs) May that be a picture of Waterstone. If people find out that we're on to something that gives the heart joy, they will stampede us to the source. May there be joy. Jesus is king. He reigns. And his Holy Spirit lives in us. And so we listen to his voice in the scriptures. And we love each other like there's no tomorrow. Uh Uh-uh, no. We love each other like there's tomorrow. Now. Amen?